Welcome to Love Works with Chris and Karen Conley. This is Karen, and I am in studio with my husband, also the lead pastor of High Point Church. We are going to have a lot of fun today as I was looking over our notes and the topic. I know, Chris, that goals and leadership is kind of what you live and breathe. Your love for the Lord uses your gifts in those particular areas. So we're getting ready to jump into some fun stuff today. Everybody is a leader whether they understand that about themselves or not. Some people are more goal-oriented than others, but I think we'll show the value of goals for everyone. Wherever you fall in the spectrum of whether or not you're just this incredibly driven leader or whether you say, yeah, sure, I've got some leadership qualities, but I'm more of a teammate than a primary leader. Everything that we're going to say today applies to all aspects of leadership, and you can find the proper context for you to apply it in your life, in your career, in your leadership, husband or a wife. To kind of be able to see behind the scenes. It's funny, a friend of our daughter's came over for the afternoon to hang out. It was about time for her to go, and she was trying to decide what time to have her mom come and pick her up. And I said, well, do you want to stay for dinner? And our daughter said, oh, she thinks dad's scary. And I said, well, then you definitely have to stay. Some people just have these perceptions of pastors or of churches that aren't accurate. That's where I called her down for dinner and I said, hey, I'm not scary. Come to dinner. (laughs) Hopefully you'll see some of the behind the scenes as it applies to High Point and then also apply it to your life. So all that being said, why are goals important? Well, I'll give you an example. Let's start with an example and we'll get to a place of talking about some more specifics regarding goals in my journals, 3000 to become a church of 3000. But also in that journal in November of 2012. I had written down we were a church of 1,500. Obviously, I was thinking, how do we double in size? Then, once you have a goal, you begin to put a strategy in place. It doesn't do any good to have a goal if you don't have a strategy to accomplish that goal. As I continued to look through my journals, in November of 2013, I started restructuring our team so that we could accomplish that goal. Then, in November of 2014, In my journal, I wrote this. On November 2nd, we hit 3,000 for the first time on a non-holiday, non-special event Sunday. So in two years' time, we went from 1,500 to 3,000, all because of the principle that we must think like and act like a church of 3,000 to become a church of 3,000. So you got to have that goal, and then that goal changes the way you think. And once you have that goal, you start out there and you work your way backwards in order to figure out how to accomplish that goal. Well, you probably are going to anticipate my next question, even though it's not anywhere in our prep. But sometimes I get to play the role of devil's advocate. And so maybe there's somebody listening to this and they're a high pointer and they're thinking, really, you had a goal to double the church. Should that be your goal? Absolutely. Because if that person asks that question, I would say, is every member of your family a Christ follower. And if every member of your family is not a Christ follower, would you like for them to be one of those numbers? Because see, every number has a name and every name has a story. Every story exists for the glory of God. If I don't create numbers, that's the equivalent of me not caring about people, not caring about stories, not caring about the glory of God. I care about numbers because I care about people. Heaven is a real place. 
and hell is a real place. And there's a lot of people living hell on earth, and I want to stop hell on earth. And I want to give them life and life more abundant. So people who say they don't care about numbers, I don't believe them. And people who over-spiritualize this and try to say, well, we just want to be healthy. Well, guess what? Healthy organizations, healthy churches, they grow. And an indicator of health is growth. Our children are 16 and 15, so they're almost done with their growth cycle. But if all of a sudden, back when Mark was 13 years old, of age and he did not hit a growth spurt that comes in that normal cycle around that age, we would take him to a doctor and we would say, something's wrong. Every other kid in his grade grew during this period of time. He's not growing. What's wrong? So do not be afraid of numbers. Numbers are all about people. That leads us to another question in this whole world of leadership. You set goals, but then there's also this component that God has to do what only God can do. As a leader of a church, what's the difference in how you plan and what's the difference maybe between planning and preparing? I'll ask the follow-up in a minute. We can get to God's part in that. So what is the difference between planning and preparing? Well, first I would say when you do set goals, especially when it's the category of a church or something spiritual, people do get a little nervous because you really have to ask the question, well, what can I control? versus what can I not control? So it's all about sowing and reaping. When I set goals, I'm trying to set goals related to the sowing of the seed of the word of God. If I were to think of it as a farmer, I would think of it this way. In order to have the goal of a harvest, and I'm going to plant corn, and I want to have a harvest that is this incredible harvest of 10,000 ears of corn, what I'm going to do is I'm going to set some goals related to how do I plow that field? How do I prepare the seedbed? How do I plant the seed? And then how do I pray for rain? Because there is that part there that I can't control. And then when I do what only I can do, I can trust God to do what only he can do. It's when all of a sudden my faith intersects with his faithfulness. But my faith is not just academic. My faith is not just intellectual. My faith has action. My faith does something. And in this particular situation, when it comes to goals, my faith is getting into the world of planning and preparing. So you ask the question, what's the difference between planning and preparing? Now watch this. You can't plan for the movement of God. You can't plan for the movement of God, but you can prepare for the movement of God. Let me put this in the context of a church. Every Sunday morning, I am praying that like revival would happen, that something would happen where every unsaved person in the room would trust Christ and every Christ follower who's not healthy in their walk and not growing and strong in their walk would repent of their sin and turn to God. And there would just be this incredible movement of God. Well, if I plan for that and say, okay, I'm going to have all these counselors down front and I'm going to have all this and stuff. Well, I can't necessarily plan it and make it happen just because I plan it doesn't mean it's going to happen. But I can be prepared for it in the sense that I have trained some counselors that if all of a sudden we start to see the movement of God, that they know to come down. They know to be available. They know how to follow up with people. They know how to have conversations with people. We know how to facilitate the movement of God when it happens. So you can't plan for the movement of God, but you can prepare for the movement of God. 
as you're telling that story, it makes me think back to the very early days of High Point. If you haven't been around High Point a long time, you may not have heard the story in a while. On our very first months as a church, I remember we were borrowing a facility and in a kind of old fellowship hall, and we had about 25 people gathered, and we were having kind of our first official church meeting. We were going to approve our new budget. Following the principles of Henry Blackaby, instead of saying, how much money do we have, then deciding to approve that for our budget to say, what does God want to do? Okay, if this is what we've prayed about and this is what we sense, then what would that cost? What would that look like if God actually did that? So we came forward and help me remember, what was the first budget? You're right. There was about 25, 30 people in the room, and we asked them to approve a budget of $372,000. Which was absolutely insane. Most of them were college students or singles. I don't think we had very many professionals. I can think of two that were in the room. Right. And when I asked them to approve that, I said, hey, don't worry. Don't worry. Just wait a second. I'm not asking for all of that money to come out your pockets. But I do believe God's going to reach people and there's going to be people join us that are going to help make that possible. What we saw that first year, do you remember how much? We brought in over $600,000 that first year. That's a real tangible example that I think back of in the life of our church where we could prepare for God to move. We could be looking in that direction. We were prayerful about it. We didn't just pick a number out of the sky and say, okay, God, show up with this, but to say, okay, what is it we think you want to accomplish? And then what would that cost? And then to have the faith to stand upon that and say, okay, this is how we want to, and to be good stewards. We didn't spend that money before we had it, but we were anticipating what God wanted to do. And so in that sense, I can look back and go, that's exactly what we did. And God honored that. And if we hadn't been looking towards the future and we just looked at what we had in our hands, it would be like the disciples saying, well, we only have our fish and our loaves. I don't think we can feed anyone. And so it's just a tangible way in the life of High Point. That is a perfect example. Then let's take that example and go back to the analogy of the farmer. If the farmer did all the necessary work to plow the field, to prepare the seed bed, to plant the seed and to pray for rain. But then the farmer neglected to prepare for the harvest and did not have people there ready to work when the harvest time came, then that would be irresponsible. So what we try to do as an organization at times is we try to prepare for the growth before the growth comes. We try to prepare for it by building uh, infrastructure, by building certain systems. There are times that we try to seize the opportunity before it happens, trusting and preparing for it to happen because that means we're being a good steward. See, I don't think God will entrust us with something we can't handle. We've got to be prepared for what he wants us to handle. In that way, he can trust us because we have built the infrastructure, we have built the systems, and we have prepared for the blessing. And that's even why there are times that we hire people before we really need that according to numbers. But we hire the person on the front end as a way to prepare for the harvest to come. 
all of the things that you're talking about, I know you have a strong sense of moving forward. And one of the things that you say all the time is that you would rather risk being right instead of fearing being wrong. That's something that is a part of who you are that I think God uses, that faith that you have. What is that dynamic that exists between risk and fear for anybody that's in leadership? Well, I just walked out of a meeting and we just were applying that principle in the meeting before we came here. So that is a overarching principle that we really use as a grid for decision making on a regular basis. So when we talk about risk being right instead of fearing being wrong, the first thing it does is it acknowledges the fact that there's always risk and fear involved. On the opposite side of risk is reward. If you take the appropriate risk, then there is a reward on the other side. But the word also says risk. So what are you risking? Well, you're risking that if for some reason something doesn't go right or happen the way that you've prepared for it to happen, then sometimes it's not as successful as you want it to be. Sometimes it can even be a failure. And there are times that it's okay to fail. This is why this principle is so important. When I say risk being right instead of fear and being wrong, it's also because I'm okay with failure. Because anytime we fail, we fail forward because we learn from that failure so that we never fail the same way twice. And then we get up and we move forward. Failure is a part of advancement as long as you're not afraid of it. Now, if you're afraid of failure, you never do anything. Listen, there is not a safe way to go into all the world and make disciples. Think about that. How do you safely go into all the world and make disciples? We have got to normalize the fact that failure is a part of life, but okay, if I failed, no big deal. I'm going to learn from it. I'm going to move forward. But I must live in the category of saying, I'm going to find out where God's at work. And if I know and I see evidence that God is at work there, I'm going to risk what it takes to join him. Okay. So don't live in your comfort zone. You have to realize this. Every time we grow, we gain something. And because we've gained something, sometimes we then become afraid of the next risk because we're afraid of losing what we've gained. And when we become more afraid of losing what we gain, then the next reward is when we begin to go backwards. Even in the parable of the talents, if you're hiding what you have, then you're not being a good steward of it. And I think back to that illustration, when God did overwhelm us that first year, I think he was willing to because we had a plan for it. If we had just been sitting around and all of a sudden we doubled what income we thought and we're like, oh, great. Look, we've got all this great money. Instead of we already had a plan that we had prayed through of this is how God would want to use this if it arrived. Well, if you have a money manager working for you, if you've got someone that is helping you read the markets, understand what's happening in the stock world, looking at your finances, you know, being a financial advisor and investor for you. All right. And that person's just safe all the time. And they basically are just doing the equivalent of taking your money and hiding it. Right. You know, in that parable, he calls that servant a wicked and lazy servant versus I'm going to take 
your resources. I'm going to be a good steward of it. I'm going to invest it, and I'm going to get a return on that investment. Kind of as a follow-up to that, you also talk about a certainty quotient. For those that are listening to this, that maybe they're new to this idea of risk, or maybe they're risk-adverse, explain the certainty quotient. How does that come into play? The certainty quotient really is built around this question. How certain do you have to be to make a decision? How certain do you have to be to make a decision? Different personalities have different certainty quotients. One's not right, one's not wrong. And in the concept of a team, we need to learn how to work together with our different certainty quotients to make the best decision. Now, your certainty quotient is much different than my certainty quotient. So as you look at a decision, what would you say? How certain do you typically have to be to feel good about making that decision and moving forward? Probably 70 percent. Okay, I would have guessed a little bit higher than that. (laughs) You always say we're horrible self-evaluators, so it's probably 80%. It might be more true. I think you really value stability, security, those kind of things. But you are a leader, and you've lived with me for over 20 years, so we've lived a, a lifestyle of risk. But I would say for me, now, this doesn't mean I don't do my homework. I will do my homework. I'll, I'll research. I'll study. I'll know kind of all the facts about what's involved in making a decision. But if I have a sense that this is God's in this, this is a risk being right instead of fear and being wrong. If you get me at 51%, I'm willing to make a decision. 55%, man, I'm really ready to go. 60%, I am as confident as I've ever been. What we have to see is that God tells us what to do. He almost always tells us what to do. He tells us, I want you to walk right through that river into the promised land. But he rarely tells us how. So Joshua knew that he had to gather all these hundreds of thousands of people. And he knew in three days he had to cross that river. But he had to eventually just put his foot in the river. And once he risked putting his foot in the river, then God parted the waters. And they walk through. So God tells us what, but he rarely tells us how. And that's why that principle that we teach so frequently is true, that the sign comes after the act of obedience. Because a lot of times, what do we do? We stand on this side of the river and we go, hey, God, if you'll go ahead and part those waters, then guess what? I'll show enough faith to walk through them. What faith is that? We have to put our foot in the water and the sign comes after the act of obedience. It's okay that some people have a certainty quotient of 70%. It's okay that some people have one of 80%. But then when we get together and I've got one of 51% and someone has one of 80%, then that typically means as a team we come together and we need probably 65% in order to make that decision and move forward. And that's a great picture in a biblical context. Obviously, there's different contexts that you can apply this to, and you need to understand that particular set of circumstances. But when you talk about it biblically, if Joshua waited till he had a 100% certainty quotient or Moses before walking through the Red Sea, that would have been disobedience. So there are times if we are going to be listening to the Father, he wants to use us, and we have to follow him. And like you said, he's not going to spell it all out to us. There are times that we have to trust, that we have prayed, we have discerned, and now we will act. And occasionally he does tell us how. But when he tells us how, that's really more scary to me than him not telling me how. Because if he tells you to walk around the walls of Jericho seven times and shout and expect that the walls are going to fall down, A, that sounds a bit crazy. B, that maybe requires more faith than not knowing. 
If he tells you to shrink your army to 300 people, you know, like he told Gideon, I'm going, I don't know that I have that much faith. But if he tells me to cross that river, and I'm sitting there looking at thinking, okay, okay, he's told me to do that. I know what he's told me to do. Then somehow or another, I'm just going to act on it. And then we're going to see when I act on my faith, that is where my faith intersects with his faithfulness. And he does what I cannot do to accomplish his purposes. Well, and as you talk about Joshua and Moses and others, that leads us to a really important dynamic, and that's the dynamic of leadership. So I think we're probably out of time for this particular podcast, but we'll pick up this conversation next time and talk about how goals and leadership interact, both in the life of church at High Point and also in our lives personally. But in the meantime, if you want more information, feel free to go to highpointmemphis.com or you can follow Chris's blog or my blog at chrisconley.net or karenconley.com. But more than anything else, never forget that love God plus love people equals love works.